Support for the show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey there. Before we get to the show, I've got one favor to ask. Do not worry. It does not cost you a cent. My employers just want to know a bit more about you so we can figure out how to make stuff you like and how to tell advertisers just how desirable you are. To tell us how smart, attractive, and affluent you are, please go to the link in the show notes or directly to vox.com slash pod survey. Thanks. Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. Eric Bogosian is an iconic actor and playwright. He broke through back in the 1980s with riveting theater performances, and since then he's done a ton of movies and TV shows. He's been a Steven Seagal bad guy and a police captain on Law & Order. He's been in a very big role recently. He's been in Billions, Succession, Uncut Gems. He's now the anchor for AMC's Interview with the Vampire. It's a very big budget TV swing. Welcome, Eric Bogosian. Thank you, Peter. Like I said, you've got a really impressive resume. I see you a lot on screen in the last few years. I get a charge when I see you. You are usually uh, have a smaller role whenever I'm watching, but here you were literally the first thing I see when I turn on AMC's new interview with the Vampire Show. This is their attempt to sort of create a new Walking Dead, and you are you are their center stage. Do you feel that pressure? I don't feel any pressure. I had an unusual beginning to my career where I was. I came to New York in 75. I immediately quit the acting profession. It just seemed too competitive. And I ended up down in Soho and hanging around with all these artists and performers. And I just started making my own work. And that work eventually would be the solo stuff that got to be pretty well known. Between 1980 and 2000, I did six shows off Broadway and they were very popular. While those were going on, which were solos back when people weren't doing solos, I cooked up this idea of taking one of the characters and building a whole play around it, and that was talk radio. And Ed Pressman, the movie producer, came and saw it at the public theater, and he brought it to Oliver Stone, and we made the movie in 1988, only one year after the play had been running at the public theater. And talk radio really launched me into the stratosphere of Hollywood and all of that stuff. And and I worked after that pretty consistently. So my first really well-known thing was to be this lead guy in this movie with the hottest director in Hollywood. And I got a lot of attention. I won the Berlin uh, Silver Bear and all that cool stuff. However, when coming out of it, because I was a writer of it and I was also the star of it, there was sort of the direct, uh, like, what direction am I going to go? I, I love acting. Uh, for me, writing is a job. And uh, I love writing too, but it doesn't come as naturally. And I had a small, I had a two-year-old and soon to have two little kids and I needed steady income. And 
Hollywood was knocking on the door saying, you come and you write for us and you're going to, we'll pay you. As opposed to be constantly on location, traveling, and with this sort of crap game called acting. So I put all my chips into the into the writing thing and I really kind of pulled away from the acting thing. I did do a couple of large roles around that time, uh, particularly the Under Siege 2, but I was sort of underwater as far as acting went for a number of years. And I was a writer for many years, and which was great. I mean, Writers Guild, it's a union job, it's great. Very few of those things got made, but that's typical of the of writing. I wrote movies, I wrote pilots. And then eventually, uh, after I did, I mean, what was really nice was that uh, Law & Order came in out of the blue. Not entirely out of the blue. I had just done a play, and I had been noticed in this play, people that were really getting off on it. My friend Warren Light, who runs Law & Order, he, at the time he was running Criminal Intent, but he's better known now for doing SVU all these years. But he said, he brought me over to, and he said, do you want to be the captain? And I wanted to do, and I, first of all, I want to get back into the acting thing. My kids were much older. I didn't need to be around anymore as much. And also it was college and it was expensive. So here was a steady gig. And I, and I remember working in New York. In New York, I could walk to work from where I live. I could walk up to Chelsea Piers where they were shooting it. And years before, I had been, I had done a play with Kurtwood Smith, who is from the 70s show. He's Red, the dad. And he had hit that show when he was in his 50s. And I always thought, <clears throat> I want one of these jobs that just is a paying job. And I, I mean, honestly, I did over 60 episodes of Law and & Order, and there were... I don't think there's a, a a minute of footage that I would say to anybody, you got to see me on this show. I did nothing <laughs> remarkable. I walk in with a coffee cup and I reiterate the plot points, which is what my character was meant to do. But I got paid and I got my kids through college. And then all of a sudden, kids weren't in college. A lot of expenses were gone from my life. And I said, I'm ready. I'm ready to get back into this this thing. And I've been very fortunate particularly over the last 10 years or so with being able to get into these quality things and the nature of the business has changed so radically because when I started out in the 80s, you had movies that had big character roles in them and you had the lead and the character roles paid very well. If you did a Warner Brothers movie or something, you do two of those a year, you're, you're cool. And actors like David Morse were known for that kind of stuff. Nobody knows their name. They're the bad guy. It's great. Mm -hmm. What I did under Siege 2 in 94, I'm probably the last unknown actor, as far as the audiences are concerned, non-star actor, to have a lead like that. After that, they were paying so much, and they paid me a lot at the time, that stars were like, I want to be the bad guy. Give me that money. And in fact, I'll do it cheap. I'll only do it for only $3 million. And so... The game changed again, and now the leads want $20 million. At the time, I was writing for Warner's, and I was acting in a Warner's film. And Jim Carrey's representatives had just left the production office, the, the president's office, and I, had, I was just hanging out in there. And he was, he was hitting the roof. He said, they just came in here. They want $20 million a picture. I'm not going to give them $20 million. Well, they did give them $20 million a picture. 
And that changed the business again because now so much money was getting sucked to the top, there was no money to pay the middle guys. Didn't Jim Carrey re- reward his, uh, his, his agents with like a Gulfstream as a, as a <laughs> <Probably>. thank you? <laughs> I, I think that was the story. I mean, the point for me was that those kind of mid-level character roles evaporated just at a time when I was ready to do them. And that was the status quo until this TV renaissance began. Now we've got a situation where you've got streaming shows where actors who are terrific actors, but people may not know their name, are working. Everybody's working. Atlanta is incredible. It's like uh, Hollywood down there. I was in Atlanta. I was in New Orleans. Here in New York, there was all kinds of stuff going on. Just so much work for everybody. Now, it may not be some kind of banner headline uh, salary, but for actors that, like myself who have a, their heart in the theater, you know, to be able to pay your rent is, is great. And that's what's exactly what's happened. And you see people even evolving out of that, like two of my friends, Natasha Leone or Betty Gilpin, who come in and nobody knows their name. And by the time they're on the shows that they're on, now they're stars and now they start doing movies. I'm not in it to be a star. I'm not in it to make a lot of money. But the thing that's great is that the streaming business kind of leads with the character stuff now. And so to answer, that's a very long answer to your question. Was there any anxiety about taking this role? No, I, I know how to do this. I, I know what I'm doing. I also choose roles that I feel I can do well with. And this was a, the odd thing is, is that the day before they called me up, I was thinking, I've done pretty much everything I want to do. This one thing I haven't done is I haven't been a vampire and I want to be a vampire. Uh, I love (laughs) Frank Langella and Dracula and I wanted to do that. And um, I get this phone call and I'm like, wow, that's strange. And they go, yeah, but you're not going to be a vampire. You're going to be the guy interviewing the vampire. And I said, well, who's the vampire? And they said, Jacob Anderson. And I'm a fan of Game of Thrones and particularly Jacob Anderson. I thought his work on that show... Uh, like many of his uh, people on the show, was just excellent. Remind us what what role he had on that show. He's Grey Worm. He's the okay. uh, leader of the Eunuch Army. Yep, and is a very subtle role. I think when people get lauded for very over the top performances, particularly losing your temper or crying or yelling or any of that kind of stuff, but any actor can tell anybody who's good knows that that's not the hard thing to do. The hard stuff is the subtle stuff. As it turned out, working with Jacob was absolutely a dream. He's a wonderful, not only a wonderful actor, but he's a wonderful person. And we, because I'm interviewing him and then he tells a story and then it goes into flashback. I don't work with Sam or Bailey at any time. I never see them. And so I, there is another actor who I guess I'm not supposed to talk about, Assad, who I do spend time with a little bit in the scenes and who's also lovely, but well, most of my time was with Jacob and the whole, the whole enterprise was absolutely top shelf. You play the cranky, uh, talented and flawed journalist, which, which I appreciated uh, seeing on screen. What do you I think play myself, someone, yes, basically. Thank you. What, <laughs> what do you think someone is looking for when they ask you to be in one of these shows now? Do they think there's an Eric Bogosian type that they want? And they go, well, just let's get Bogosian. Or is there something that you, where you have to convince them that you would work in that role? Like you were in Billions and Succession, both about billionaires. You play very different characters in there. One, you're a hedge fund guy. One, you're Bernie Sanders, basically. Do you think there's some common thing that they want? Or are you bringing in something different each time? 
Well, I think just as we you were saying to me before we even started this recording, men of a certain age uh, now, I would say getting moving towards 50, but even in mm-hmm. their 40s, ha- revere this movie I made many years ago, Talk Radio, with a very strong character who people mistake for me. They think that's what I'm actually like. I, I guess there's parts of me that are like that. But um, so here, I, I understand that. I mean, they, they, they want, they think, oh, you, what? I can hire him. I can get him to do something. Do they want me to do that thing? Yeah, they want me to do that thing. To be angry and smoke. Well, yeah, but I don't even, no, I think it's a little bit more than that. I think it's um, a style that I have that I don't, I'm not even aware of. I have a emphatic, I don't, I don't know. I can't, I can't analyze it. I don't even really know what I do, but I do think that there was this notion that like, you're going to bring that to the game. Now, the thing is, I'm not that guy. I mean, that was a long time ago. It's 35 years ago. So I'm I'm an older guy. And then some of these guys, I mean, I think in the case of the Safdie brothers, as far as Uncut Gems went, they were actually dipping down into a past period in terms of style and vibe of that movie, like a, sort of a Scorsese-esque movie. Mm-hmm. And so they were also grabbing me out of the past and they got me my full angry, full tilt anger thing. But um, Roland Jones, who's the showrunner on Interview with the Vampire, he is, uh, you know, he's not the director. He, he oversees the directors, but he's the writer and he's thinking about texture. And I think that when he was putting the different elements of his texture of what this show and this includes the look of the show the style of the writing everything kind of combines to a bigger thing you know he needed some uh you know some pepper in there he needed to throw a little bit of that in a little sprinkling and i think that's what he thought he would get with me i don't necessarily come in with any kind of preset idea that it's going to be this and it's certainly not going to be like eric from talk radio or eric from anything that you've seen me do before i'm looking at the script and i let the script tell me what to do in this case the script was so close to me that it was very challenging just to create a character who's vibrating very close to my own personal vibe because Let's the guy's in his 60s. I'm in my 60s. The guy had a heyday. I had a heyday. And the difference is, is that this guy is a, when I say this guy, Daniel Malloy, he is a get the story journalist of a type that I'm actually not. I'm not a perfectionist and I'm not a, I'm not going to go riding around in Afghanistan to get the story or any of that kind of stuff. I'm just not that person. But this guy is, and he sees the opportunity I mean, let's face it. If you could break a story about vampires, you're okay. gonna you're gonna have a hot story, and he's gonna be back in the game. And it's dangerous. It's like super dangerous because already this guy's almost killed him once forty five years ago. Because I'm playing the guy that Christian Slater plays in the uh, just to make it in shorthand. I don't like to really say it that way, but just for anybody who doesn't understand that they made a movie in the nineties with Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt and Christian Slater was Daniel. But Daniel at that point was a, was a young green journalist. He didn't even really know what he was doing and he got himself in a lot of trouble. Now I'm an older, this is the older, wiser uh, dog. 
the interview with the vampire movie he said 94 i remember it came out and those those were the two maybe the two biggest stars in hollywood oh yeah huge buzz and then immediately the you know this is basically pre-internet the buzz was oh it's not very good i've never seen it have have you seen the movie i saw it at the time i was uh when i when ann rice's book came out in the 70s i read it uh interview with the vampire and i loved it and I continued to read some more of her stuff, but I never got the same jolt that I got from the book. The movie, I mean, it's like anything. When you read a book, your own imagination is filling in all the details. Then you see a movie and everything becomes concrete. And if it isn't the same as what you were thinking when you were reading the book, there's going to be some dissonance there. And that's that's kind of what happened. I mean, I think my biggest issue, and it's it's interesting that they say um, Kirsten Dunst, you know, kind of that was her breakout picture. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, nobody knew her. So when she comes out and she plays this character, it's all like she's that girl. As opposed to when Brad Pitt walks in, it's like, oh, there's Brad Pitt with fangs. And here's Tom Cruise with fangs. Here's Kristen Slater doing, you know, it's like... Of course, when producers make movies, they want to get asses in seats right away. And you're going to do that with stars. I learned that with talk radio. I mean, we, I was not a star when that movie came out and it's endured. But when it opened, we weren't doing box office. In fact, we were up against Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman at the time when they did Rain Man. Which I've also, I do remember that movie as well. I did see that one. Great movie. You mentioned that the, the streaming boom. I usually ask this question at the end of it. Do you at the end of the conversation, do you feel like there's a time limit on this boom and that there's any pressure on you to get as much work as you can before things unboom? And it seems like that is happening now. The spending isn't going down necessarily, but they're definitely clamping down a bit on budgets. There's going to be consolidation. And the premise of all the streaming boom was eventually we'll stop spending so much money on all this stuff and we'll be able to sort of consolidate everything. Are, do you feel that looking for work, doing projects? Well, I definitely want to get in as much work as possible before assisted living. Uh, that's my main goal. But yeah, I think it's pretty clear at this point, two things are happening. It's a crowded field and it seems like every year in this musical chairs, one chair gets pulled away. And then people, like in some cases, they consolidate. And there was just talk about that yesterday. I think Disney was talking about Hulu or something yesterday. Or somebody was talking about Hulu. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is the business model itself. Nobody really understands. Uh, It's always been kind of secretive as to what the hell is actually going on. Whether you're talking about HBO, who don't tell people really what's happening, or Netflix, who we know has some kind of algorithmic thing going on, but we don't really know. And the question is, where's the profit? And there's a lot of money going into it. One thing for sure, I mean, I noted the amounts of money that Netflix was putting into development. And I used to be going in and pitching to big movie studios in the 90s, and they didn't have that kind of money. They didn't have, they weren't spending $4 billion a year on development. So it's, we're in a different game. I'd be stupid to say I, I know where this is all going. They can try to batten down the, the, the hatches economically, but as they start to do that, they run into a problem. You know, it's like being a boxer. You, you try one punch and you open yourself up to another punch. So if you try and make everything cheap, I mean, there was something, there was a quote yesterday about some, some one of these companies, they said, yeah, we're going to just start making, you know, much cheaper, much broader audience material. 
yeah, good luck with that. That's what everybody's been trying to do since they invented television. It's, it's. <laughs> There's another one when they say we're just going to make hits, which is yeah, also funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As my agents once said, we need you to write another hit. That'll really help your career. <laughs> You're. I mean, we know from the inside. Those of us who kind of work in this field, roughly, and my friends who write for it, that each one of these big guys has a different uh, style. So we all know that Apple is paying top dollar to bring in the top, most expensive actors. And of course, when that happens, the agents are like, let's go sell, uh, you know, this this actor to Apple because they're really going to pay the most amount of money. Then you've got HBO with their uh, tradition of quality. And I've worked with HBO like, I think, eight times as an actor, as a writer. So AMC... We, I mean, it's no secret they're a smaller outfit, but they do they do a sort of a different thing. They don't make a million things. They make they make one or two things, and they put a lot of energy into it. And I have to say, it's been an experience unlike any I've had working with any studios under any circumstances. I mean, you could make a show for Netflix, and you can and you can try and find it, and you can't find it. I was lucky. I was on Uncut Gems just as the. Uh, as COVID hit and, and uncut was like right up there every day. But generally, you, I mean, I'll have friends in a show. I can't find the show because Netflix is releasing so many shows. AMC, on the other hand, is making it very clear to me and everybody involved with the show that they are 100% behind it. And that's that's wild. I mean, I just have- They're 100% behind it and they, they, they need it too. Because yeah. Walking Dead is going to go off. They need well, that's a new their, big thing. That's their headache. I mean, one thing I've learned over the years is I can't... My job has nothing to do with the business side of it. I'm sorry to disappoint if this is a sort of a business angle we're talking about. But, you know, my job is to provide my skills, which is what the things I'm good at that I don't even completely understand. And I let the business affairs people figure out the business affairs. We're, in, we're, in, we're always in the middle of that sort of stuff. My reps are always doing those kind of things. So I don't know, and I'm not going to try and guess. I mean, if you were, if it was six months ago, you'd have to assume that HBO was going to continue to barrel down the pike. Well, now we're, we've got a different HBO about to emerge, and nobody really knows what that means. Certainly, the people who've been making expensive shows for HBO have to be a little concerned because they're wondering if they're going to have the same budgets. I don't know that our budget is um, like through the roof uh, with this show. But I do know they're doing the things that make the creatives feel really good about themselves. So they bring in the best people who really know what they're doing and they let them have their head. Having been in development a number of times in LA writing screenplays for all the studios, I have to say you get notes from people who don't know what they're talking about. It's quite possible. You have an executive who's giving you notes but they didn't read the script. The notes are coming from their development kids who have never made a movie. So they're saying this is what needs to happen in this script, but they don't know what a movie is. The exec isn't read the script, hasn't read it. My favorite notes I ever got were from Sam Goldwyn Jr. when he was alive and when he was running that that company, the Sam Goldwyn company, and he knew what he was talking about. I was happy to get the notes from him because... It made sense to me. And then there's times when I, I mean, I worked for Billy Gerber at Warner's and I had, you know, I don't think he read the script and he was famous for not reading the script. (laughs) We'll be back with Eric Bogosian in a minute, but first a word from a sponsor. 
Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And we're back. We can leave business. I want to go back in time. You, you alluded to this a little bit about breaking through on Broadway or not in New York City theater, mainly doing monologues. How did you get to that form? What attracted you to a monologue? What's what's different about performing a monologue than other kind of acting? There have been a lot of monologue shows since, and there were and there were monologue shows before my show. Of course, there was things like. Um, Mark Twain Tonight with Hal Holbrook, who would come out on the stage and pretend to be Mark Twain for an hour or so. There was Lily Tomlin in, uh, in Search for Intelligent Life in the Universe, which was a Broadway show, and she played a lot of different characters. But she was Lily Tomlin, and everybody knew who she was, and so they came to see her. When I started out, there was nothing about that. I First of all, I wasn't in the theater anymore, although I had a lot of theater training. I was more around a sort of downtown punk scene and around people who were basically just trying to think of the most, whatever they could think of, the craziest stuff they could come up with. And I was hanging around visual artists. And the easiest artist to understand how that has anything to do with what I do is Cindy Sherman, who's become a very well-known artist over the years, making photographs of herself. And I think she's probably the best-known artist in the world today. She, um, she made these galleries of types and I was making galleries of types with my monologues. I wasn't really that concerned about whether they were entertaining or not. When I first started doing them, I was just doing sort of snapshots of men. But what happens is when you keep performing all the time, and I was how I made a living, I get a hundred bucks here, a hundred bucks there. The monologues got better and I learned how to write and I learned how to, uh, I learned where the funny was. I learned about timing. And over a two-year period, they got polished. And then Joe Papp had me come to the public theater and do the first of these in 1982. And I got a good review. And he brought me back the following year. And I had another show, got another good review. And I was I really didn't want to keep doing them. I wanted to write plays or that's pretty much what I wanted to do. And I would end up doing that. But the, the monologue shows just had a life of their own. And they began with me... Like the audience is not doesn't know who Eric Bogosian is. There's just a this crazy guy. He walks out. He just starts becoming characters one after another. And that was the idea that I had. And I guess there was something about them that people really got into. And I mean, in in one regard, they were a lot like Saturday Night Live sketches in terms of their va shape. But the material itself was way darker than you could do on SNL. So. There was that. 
And then by the time we did sex, and my wife was directing these, Joe Bonney, and uh, she became, she's she's the one who has the show about to open on Broadway, Cost of Living, and which is kind of funny because she's opening the day after we premiere this interview with the vampire, which is kind of, so it's going to be a lot of fun here around this household. But the fourth one was Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll. That was around 90, and it was the biggest it was the biggest hit off Broadway that had ever been. We 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 did more box office faster than anybody had ever done. And I was like, okay, I didn't want to be a comedian. And I ended up with a, a, a strange moment in my life. This happens to performers all the time where HBO via Cinemax had made a deal with me to do the show, to show the show. And this was at a moment when HBO was breaking all these comedians. And I had this deal. And then we cooked up this idea that we would make a movie instead. And this whole movie thing came in and HBO said, we'll wait, we'll wait for the next one. And we'll, we'll do it with that because you, you should go do your movie. You're going to get a ton of money to do it. And I did. And the company went out of business as they were releasing the movie. And I was high and dry as far as that kind of comedic thing. But talk radio had already come and gone and and that sort of had put me on this other trajectory so it's kind of funny i mean i wonder if i had ever done an hbo special where i have an exposed brick wall behind me and i'm doing characters maybe i would have a different life today i'm kind of glad i don't have that life but i found sex drugs and rock and roll uh today it's on peacock of all places you can watch it for free <laughs> with ads which is kind of funny but um oh, it's a Jesus. very good encapsulation of, of your work and and it's very accessible and anyone who's listening at this point should still go check it out it's free um i do want to ask about talk radio which i also rewatched last night and it's it's really interesting because it's it's both a time capsule and it's incredibly timely right it's a time capsule because it's you're making this at a time when Howard Stern and Don Imus are really big, important cultural no, figures. No, no, they're not. No, they're not big no? stars yet. No, when I start, when I write the play, uh, they are. Well, Don Imus was the original guy. Yes, Don Imus, but that yeah. wasn't who I based the play on. I just based the play on. There were all kinds of shock jocks all over the country. Yeah. Howard was one of them. He wasn't in New York yet. He was in D.C. and huh. he would come to New York around the same time that we were doing the play at the public theater, because the play is a play, it's not a solo. And um, and we made the movie. And Oliver created all kinds of trouble for me because he went to Howard as we were putting the movie together. Oliver did not have the rights to do this, Oliver Stone. And he said, you'd be great in this movie I'm gonna make. I'm gonna make a movie about a talk radio guy. And Howard Stern was all, oh, great. And then, you know, he couldn't do that. I'm, I wrote it, I own it. So I played the guy. <laughs> he wanted you to play. He wanted Howard Stern to play you. He had no. He's teasing. He was teasing him. They were probably yeah. out drinking or something. Okay. But this this put a bee under Howard's bonnet, and this he persisted with this over the years. He finally stopped when he made his own movie, and it was a huge hit. And he was really happy that he had his huge hit movie about what he does. What's also strange is that the movie talk radio. There's an older version of me and I have long hair and I look like Howard, but that's not based on Howard. There are whole things about the wife and making fun of all these odd things. I mean, Howard would eventually, after giving his wife a hard time constantly on the show, would end up breaking up with his wife and ending up with another woman. So it, 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 it's not so, I mean, I always felt that it wasn't about, certainly wasn't about Howard. I didn't even know about Howard at that time. It was about some other guys, certainly, um, 
Alan Berg had been gunned down in his front yard around the time that we were doing the play or just before, because the play goes back to 1984. So it's, I, I started working on it long before any of this stuff was happening. It was more like a type of person. And what I was really getting at, not to get into this too deeply, but had more to do with John Belushi than anything else because John Belushi had died in 1982 from a drug overdose. And I was very interested in how far a performer will go to entertain an audience because we, we live with the, the audience gives us our life. This is how we become who we are. But what happens when that destroys you? And so I was, I, I, I couldn't do a thing about a stand up. It just, if you do a movie or a play about a stand up, then he's got to be really funny. And I couldn't figure out how to do that. But if I did a talk radio guy, I could I could have somebody call in and have him answer back with some really sharp answer that I took two months to think up. And then it would seem like he was very smart. So maybe my, my radio timeline is off, but I'm looking and I'm transporting it today. And so many of the really most awful, but also popular people in political cultural discussion are either former radio guys or they're they're doing radio still or they're basically doing radio because they're podcast hosts and you can plug in. They're mostly on the right, but um, and they're all doing this thing where maybe they believe what they're saying. Maybe they don't. They're definitely playing for an audience um, with potentially enormous consequence. Um, and again, talk radio, the consequence is very, very direct, but it's also very specific, right? The guy gets killed at the end, spoiler. But here it's something different. And I'm, I'm sure I'm not the first person to ask you about sort of the parallels between that movie and what you see happening today. But I'm going to ask you. Anyway. Oh, for, you for sure. I think, and, and that has to do with the fundamental idea of the piece, which was two things. You say whatever you have to say to get your ratings up. And if you're willing to say anything, who knows where you might end up. And of course, we got this dickhead who did the thing with these poor children up in uh, Connecticut. Uh, I, I can't even remember his name, but he's in court. right Ron now. Ron DeSantis. Not Ron DeSantis. The, um, no, the guy who has the show. The, he's a shock jock oh. kind of. And he oh, said oh, that, oh, 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 thank you. That, Alex Jones. Different dickhead. Alex Jones. Thank you. Non-elected a different dickhead. dickhead. Yes. Um, <laughs> they come in all shapes and sizes. But I mean, Alex Jones knew that he could build an audience by saying really outrageous stuff. That's one thing. The other thing is not everybody listening necessarily believes in what you... You can build a very large audience just by being spectacular. And that's the Rush Limbaugh thing. I mean, I've listened to Rush Limbaugh. He's very entertaining. He would say, and I think he's a war criminal myself and a junkie and he's dead God ridden, good riddance. But the thing is, he would say, I'm just an entertainer. And I'm sure that's what he believed. And that's what he, how he made all his money. And when you return back to the topic of Howard Stern, even though I've never had a conversation with Howard, I have to say, I really respect Howard Stern because in the guise of this kind of shock jockdom, he brings up all kinds of topics that are really important to talk about, particularly having to do with handicapped people. And, you know, there aren't many radio shows or TV shows where you're going to hear somebody talking who has the, let's say, speech problems that some of the people who he has on his guests. I haven't listened to him a, a million times. He brings his audience to these different things. And actually, I don't think he ever does anything that's politically incorrect. He, it seems like he does, but he actually doesn't. He's certainly not telling everybody to get behind a war that was incredibly damaging and destructive and killed 
thousands of Americans and hundreds of thousands of Iraqis. That's never been Howard Stern's thing. So it's very, I think he's kind of a genius that he's been able to thread the needle and I respect him for that. But yeah, I think that you, and, and again, you have a lot of wannabes. I'm reading a book right now about um, this guy. Um, uh, he was a big uh, gangster. He's the guy that Denzel Washington played in, uh, Frank Lucas was his name, that Denzel mm -hmm. Washington played in American Gangster. And, you know, he was just like balls to the wall, would do anything, kill anybody, do anything. Okay, fine. Well, you got a lot of kids who think, I want to be like that guy. I want to be legendary. I'm going to go. And then, you know, next thing you know, they're serving 30 years in jail. They don't even know what hit them. And they've been out on the street for like two years and they went and they killed a bunch of people. It's just because you want to do it doesn't mean that you can do it. And this, uh, and I hope Alex Jones, I don't know what, I guess it's not a criminal complaint, so he can't go to jail, but um, he's absolutely reprehensible piece of S. And um, and there's a lot of people like that, and 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 I think you're right in that this has infected the political, the actual guys doing the political stuff now, because everything is a function of the mass media. That's been the case for a long time, mm -hmm. but I think somehow it's it's understood. You know, when Trump was running for president, my mother, you know, she's like, oh, he's so nice, he's so great. Why do you think that? Well, from watching him on a show. What show? I didn't even watch the show. But they were he was in everybody's living room and they had a feel, you know, it's sort yeah. of like if And presented and as Harry a successful businessman when he was not a successful businessman. Yeah, and also somebody you just kind of know, you trust him. And so the media creates all this. It's we 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 know that it's a it's a problem. I'm not going to try and my my job is not to try and analyze these things. My job is to just make uh, dramatic material or or play characters certainly about things that i don't understand actually so it sort of like helps us have a meditation about it you were finding your way in new york in the late 70s and 80s and soho and soho was a very different kind of thing in new york everything changes but new york's obviously much more expensive and it'd be very difficult for a kid from oberlin to come figure out how to do art in new york i would think what do you what do you think kid from Woburn, mass yeah what what do you that's, think that's Eric where bogosian does today if he's trying to figure out his art and who he wants to be and how he wants to communicate do you find some other city and try to make that art or are you doing it on the internet well i i can't even begin to speak to what happens with the internet i have a niece who has a uh, youtube channel nisa pisa and she has like 175,000 followers they send her a check every month from youtube i mean and she talks about makeup and um and she's really funny and that's a world I don't even begin to try to understand. As far as if you're a creative person in the performing arts, which I think I can generally say that's where I came out of, and, and all of my friends are either musicians or choreographers, dancers, that kind of stuff. I mean, you go to where the action is. The action is still in New York. There are other hotspots. Every city has one. But New York is so limitless that you can actually, like you could go to Seattle tomorrow and you would understand the whole scene in about a month. You can't do that in New York. It's impossible. You, I think the Detroit scene is fascinating. Los Angeles is always cool. Right now, New Orleans has all kinds of cool stuff going on. And, and Atlanta, as far as film goes, is bigger than every place else at present. Tyler Perry's studios are bigger than Universal Studios. But me, I'd come to New York because it's the most interesting place. Also, we're a disparate community. Like if you go to LA 
uh, everybody's going to be working in film or TV. But you come to New York, you may be at a party and you're hanging out with a guy who plays in the symphony up in Lincoln Center and another person who's a dancer at some, you know, granola type dance studio down in, in Tribeca or in Brooklyn. So you this this feeds you to have all these different influences coming in. The thing that I never did and that I, I can't advise anybody to do is to go and look for the gig. I, didn't, I never looked for the gig. I looked for the community. I looked for the stuff that I dug and I hung around the places and the people who made cool stuff. So, I mean, I can only assume and this is this is a big assumption that if you want to be a performer, you like seeing performance. If you like seeing performance, what performance do you like to see? Go see it and then go ask them if you can sweep the floor there or something or mm -hmm. tear tickets. That's how you enter this realm. But to go around and, and like, I mean, people are always asking me, you know, how do I break in the way you broke in? And it's like, if you have to ask the question, you're never going to make it because you just have to be enthused. You have to be enthusiastic. Before I let you go, I want to ask you one more internet questions about something you have done on the internet, 100 Monologues. Uh, explain what that is, why you did it, and, and why you should go check it out. Well, a few years ago, it's more than a few years ago now, I was one day just counting how many monologues I had done off-Broadway, as well as the, the couple that are in plays. And it, and there was like a hundred of them. And I said, wow. So I went to my publisher and I said, let's, let's put out a book and just call it a hundred monologues and we'll have all of them in there because students study these things. I also had had many students tell me over the years, anybody in the theater, I did your stuff in high school or I did your stuff in college. And I thought, I have, I know all these amazing character actors who people don't really see that much of. Uh, I'll use Michael Chernus as an example. So Michael was a character actor that I knew from the theater who's amazing. Now everybody knows him from Severance, but uh, he's the author on Severance. But um, people didn't know Michael that well. So I would go to these various friends of mine and I'd say, would you like to do one of my monologues and we'll tape it? Sam Rockwell, Vincent D'Onofrio, Betty Gilpin, Natasha Leone, lots of different people who I'd worked with. We filmed them. And it's free and it's online, 100monologues.com. And there are now 75 of them posted. And it ranges from people like Peter Dinklage, who everybody knows from Game of Thrones, to people that you don't know at all. Or you may have seen them, but you don't know that they, you know, you may not even know their name. And uh, they're just all actors I really totally respect. It was pretty funny. I was out at Comic-Con for Interview with a Vampire and ran into four of the actors that are on this <laughs> site who star in various shows. And they were there at Comic-Con for their stuff. Uh, Anson Mount and uh, Seth Gilliam from Walking Dead. And it's like, wow, I guess everybody's working. Asif Manvi. These guys have all done, are all on my site. And uh, I'm glad everybody's working. Another getting back to the streaming thing. Yep. Uh, there's plenty of work for the good actors. So it's it's a fun site. You can get lost there forever. It's free. I don't think there's a single ad on it, so you're obviously no, not making we're money. We're keeping it away. We're keeping it virginal. It, 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 I'll pay for it. I pay for it. Maybe someday when we finish it, we'll make a deal. The thing I don't want to do is make a deal with a big streamer, and then they can cherry pick, and they can pull out mm -hmm. Ethan Hawke or whoever they want to pull out and, and you know, Rockwell or somebody like that and just have those guys. I mean, that's, it's against, it's contrary this is, this to the spirit the, of it. The, 
the pro the internet brings us lots of crap and this is the promise the flip side of that that you can make a cool thing because it tickles you and get cool people to work on it and put it out there in the world so yeah there's some that. of them are really 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 good i really really I, I we i should just select five of them and send them to sundance or something and but i'm sort of ambitious and not ambitious at the same time <laughs> I hear you. It was great to meet you. I'm going to go tell some people, some men of a certain age, that I got to talk to you. Thanks for your time. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. Bye. Thanks again to Eric Bogosian. Since I am a man of a certain age, I got a big thrill out of that. I hope you guys did too. Thanks to our sponsors for bringing the show to you for free. That's zero dollars. Still the same. Thanks to Travis and Jelani for editing the show, producing the show, and thanks to you guys for listening. We'll see you next week.